Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to our most recent segment. We're looking forward to kind of diving into the topic of medically treated addiction. In many ways, this the topic has been around for a while, but I feel like it's just recently that homes have begun to maybe look at it, explore it, think about it. We kind of see this new wave of medical practitioners taking on medically treated addiction and trying to make sense of that. So as we enter this conversation, know that we're entering it as housing specialists, uh, not on, no one on the call as a medical specialist or is providing any sort of medical advice. This is primarily just kind of trying to think about what does this mean for the world of maternity housing, for the pregnancy health world, and explore that topic knowing that we're all in kind of experimenting phase and, and our ideas might change over time. So with that, we have uh, many people on the call today. Uh, we're blessed to have several different programs represented. So maybe we could just give quick introductions, maybe two or three sentences. We're blessed to have some of our regulars, Suzanne and Lisa from Foundation House. Want to tell us just briefly about your program, you guys? Sure. Uh, we're located in Cleveland, Tennessee, right outside Chattanooga. We see a large percentage of our clients coming in with addiction histories. Um, we do see some that are in active addiction, but we also see some that have a history of addiction and are currently in recovery. And so we're helping them walk through that either while they're pregnant or through our non-residential program where they're looking for restoration of custody of older children. I'm Lisa, Director of Client Services, and uh, everything she said is true, and that's who we are. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Tim, you're joining us from Washington State, the other side yeah. of the country, with a program called New Beginnings. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, we're a maternity home with separate housing on our campus for aftercare for single mothers and um, and birth mothers. We primarily work with women 18 to 30, but we kind of make exceptions on both sides in a case-by-case basis. We've opened ourselves up more and more to working with women facing substance abuse issues, and uh, two of our, our women have See that it's all the way through the maternity program and, and at least a year or a year and a half in aftercare who have been medically treated during their time here. Awesome. We look forward to talking more about that. Thanks. And then we have Christy and Bree from, I think, the newest home amongst us, the Inn. And you're part of a pregnancy center, kind of a bigger pregnancy help situation as well. Can you tell us a little about what's happening at the Inn? Sure. We are maternity housing in western Pennsylvania. It was a, a vision that was birthed out of three medical clinics that we had up and operating. Um, we were seeing women who were choosing for abortion because because of the lack of housing. So we've been up and running for a year and so we are we are the freshmen to the game. <laughs> but in that year, out of the five residents we've had, three of them are treating with methadone during their pregnancy and, and following. So it's been a, a huge learning curve. There's not been a whole lot of information for us to draw from. So we've been spending a lot of time on our knees for answers. Well, thank you for doing that, for, for paving the way for others. So good enter into that a little bit. So if you hadn't heard about what medically treated addiction is, so the basic concept is that there's some prescription drug that is helping to eliminate cravings or deal with the physiological aspect of withdrawal. So that's that's kind of the idea in a nutshell. Methadone, um, which has been mentioned, has been around for quite a while, but now I think there's a whole new kind of wave of drugs that we're hearing more about as well. So at least that's, that's my understanding. Can anyone add to that or when we just talk about what medically treated addiction is kind of even what we're talking about any additions to that brief description this is christy from the end and i can i can tell you that the population that we've been seeing 
have come straight out of, many of them have come straight out of the local jail. When they step into the prison system, if they test positive and they are active opioid users, state and the county automatically puts them on a methadone treatment plan in order to prevent detox because detox is highly detrimental to um, the unborn babies. So these girls automatically get placed on methadone while they're incarcerated. And then regardless of how long their sentence is, if they come to us following, you have to maintain that methadone treatment until delivery. And so it just poses this whole host of challenges. Some of these girls are very familiar with methadone and others, it's a brand new ball game altogether. Yeah, thank you for that. That's an interesting, boy, there's, there's all sorts, that raises all sorts of interesting questions in my head about that. But we do know that that is one of the advantages is that being medically treated for women in, in addiction, being medically treated is improving birth outcomes. Kind of, I talked to a friend who was a PA just to try and get a lay of the land, and that's what she said was one of the big, the big outcomes, especially for pregnant women. I would just add that that is state-specific and even district, judicial district-specific as well, because in Tennessee, it is different. They would go for medical detox here, but would not be given methadone or Suboxone while they're incarcerated. They would be medically taught. Yeah, no, thanks for that, Lisa. Tim, did you also have something to add? Yeah, I was just going to say that in our area, most of our women are coming to us out of voluntary treatment programs. So there's two hospitals within a couple hours of us that have 30-day programs. I don't know if there's a tendency more but for one or the other, but we do see women coming both on methadone and Suboxone or Subutex. And then also next year, um, they'll be opening a similar program in our same city, um, I think uh, 16 bed with a 30-day treatment program. And, and I'm guessing that most of those women will be coming out of that program. It seems like in our area, Subutex and Suboxone become more popular than methadone because of its, I think because of its accessibility. Thank you for that that insight. From a medical perspective, what I understand is that there's this idea that it allows women, so being on medically treated, it allows women to then get ready for really addressing new strategies for addiction. So the impulse, the craving, um, kind of physiological piece is dealt with, and it allows them to then move forward and looking at new strategies. So that's one thing that is said. And then the other thing is just that it stops drug-related deaths. So because it takes away the high that is related to use, um, it takes away the craving, it just kind of reduces drug-related deaths. That's kind of what I have heard or as I read as mainly the pros. Those that are questioning the use of medically treated addiction usually say something like, it's just an addiction to a different substance. So it's the women are still dependent on the substance um, and they haven't really dealt with the addiction in their life. It's just a different substance that they're using. So I think if you want kind of a lay of the land, I think those are the major major arguments I've heard. Can anyone add to that context of like, here's the bigger discussion of medically treated addiction? Another issue would be that if they don't have access to the Suboxone or methadone, whatever it is that they're on, they will have withdrawals as well that, you know, would need to be medically treated. There's still some people who can abuse those substances and they can shoot them, snort them, they're still getting that that euphoric high that they need. Those are a few additional considerations other than it's just, you know, another substance to be addicted to. Other pros, cons, things that you've encountered that as we research or try to understand what medically treated addiction is? It seems to me that um, for the women that we've worked with, that 
mostly consideration in terms of medical treatment. It's got to be in terms of health of the baby um, because what, what we experience with the moms is that it really is a replacement. And so when it comes time to think about stopping use of a substance like methadone, there's a lot of fear involved in the same way that it there would be a lot of fear involved of having to face detox from, from any substance use. That's definitely yeah, something yeah. that Christy and I can agree with. Like for the health of the baby, I think that it's a good thing, but we also struggle with it just replacing the addiction. Like the fear of coming off of methadone is just as bad as heroin or something similar. Yeah, no, thanks. So we'll, maybe we can enter into that a little bit. Suzanne, I did want to place this, you know, our bigger conversation across all these podcasts has been trauma-informed care and the impacts of trauma. So we're placing this conversation in that context. I don't know if you can, can you draw us a link between medically treated addiction and trauma for us really quick, just to place that context? Well, addiction in general, generically speaking, as a general rule, people don't become addicted just for the sake of using drugs. They don't generally want to do drugs just because they they want to. They're doing it for the purpose of masking their feelings, masking their fears, masking their their memories of abuse or of rape or of uh, some other traumatic event or or just masking the pain of um, of, of neglect that they experience experienced growing up. So in terms of addiction research, it's very closely linked to trauma. And we have to be really careful remembering that it's the past trauma that caused the addiction. And so if we're only focusing on treating the addiction and neglect to treat the initial trauma that prompted the addiction, then um, not only are we doing her a disservice, but we're Ultimately, we're, we're not actually going to fix the problem and she is going to either relapse or she's going to become addicted to something else because she still needs that pain to be masked or to be taken away. Yeah, great, great summary of that. Okay, so let's enter into kind of the different experiences. I think each of you represent kind of maybe a different approach or a slightly different approach. Maybe they're not as different as I think, but so I kind of would love to hear the three different approaches that are at least represented on the phone. Christy and Bree, I mean, you're our new program, you know, and you kind of just went there. I mean, you went, you are working you said the majority of your clients are coming straight out of jail, and that means they're medically treated by virtue of how your system works in Pennsylvania. Can you can you just talk to us about kind of what you've learned from your experience in the, the majority of your clients looking at this issue? Well, we are still learning, so there's always that. But it's funny, like when we got into this, our first client was a methadone client, and we were told it was going to be super rare, uh, and we are finding the exact opposite. I think that that's because of our relationship with the prison and because we're getting so many women out of that, that system, um, is that this is going to be something that we regularly deal with. I agree with the trauma-informed care. It, like, we cannot treat unless we get to the heart of the issue. Like, there's no helping her unless we're able to deal with that trauma first. Christy? We spend a lot of time, as our residents come into the house, we use the base matrix from the the housing coalition to rate them and see where we are and what our clients need. And we go from that to determine there's 
there's 14 key points in, in which we have to help them understand who they are holistically. So we talk about the pies of their human developments. We, we address their physical, intellectual, emotional, and social and spiritual needs. Every one of our residents comes into our program understanding that it's a faith-based program. That's a given, but what they don't understand oftentimes is that the way that they've dealt with relationships in the past or the way that they deal with conflict is a huge cause for their addiction and their issues. And so we spend a lot of time fleshing out that trauma, that early trauma. Why do you think you don't have good relationships? Why, you know, why is this a problem? Why can't you have a conversation with family without, you know, ending up in, you know, an explosive situation? It's a constant learning environment and one that oftentimes our our residents are just not, they just have no frame of reference for any quote-unquote normal home life. And so it's reframing their entire experience of what life can be from a healthy perspective. What's specifically medically assisted is that grace is it has to be given in an exponential amount. The population that we're dealing with with this is they're struggling and so we have had to offer grace when we didn't expect to and kept women on even though they broke rules that were meant for them to be kicked out and we have kept them and I think that that's made a big difference they were expecting one thing grace was given and it's not just them but we have had probation officers and CYS reach out and say thank you so much like this is the first time that they've received this grace and it's so good for them. So just listening to you, I think the medically treated part of their reality is almost secondary. You know, that that's not a major issue that you're evaluating or thinking about as part of their experience at the home. But that's just listening to you, that would be my take. Is that true or well, I think I think it's fair. That's a fair assumption. Knowing, however, that we work in close contact with the methadone clinic, that we work in close contact with their PCPs, that we go to their um, psych appointments with them, we have open conversation. As far as the effects, I can tell you that one resident can be very mildly affected by a methadone treatment and another resident can be completely unable to operate on that same similar treatment. So it really is a case-by-case basis, but we have to help her understand that she's not doing herself or her child any good if she can't stay awake long enough to change a diaper. And I guess that's the other piece to what we're doing is that, yes, we're maternity, but our residents can come back and stay with us after delivery up until six months postpartum. So to me, you haven't known another way. I mean, I think from your get-go, um, I know your organizationally has been very involved with the jail, you know, from the get-go. So it's kind of this, it's not really, it wasn't really, it was a choice that you made by default of an ongoing relationship, it sounds like. Yeah. And that, yeah, that's, can you just tell us a little about your relationship with the jail and how that plays out a little bit, how that impacts this dynamic? It's interesting. I mean, we started by praying over the prison. Our clinic is across the street. We ended up with the education inside the prison on sexual integrity. And because of that relationship, pretty much any time a woman is pregnant and walks in that door, they will call us. And so as long as that woman is willing to abide by our covenant agreement, she will come stay with us. And they have actually, it's been a court mandated program at this point, which is nothing that we anticipated or ever sought for. But that comes back to that grace again. Mistakes happen and grace was accepted 
and the court said if she leaves here, she's back in jail. So it's been an interesting process and, again, a learning curve that we're still trying to figure out. Thank you for for that. We learn a lot just by, by listening to you. Thank you for that. So, Tim, I know you mentioned that a, that a couple of the women um, that you've served, you know, in the in the context of your home, are were medically treated, and I got the impression that it was more kind of, you know, you evaluate on a case by case basis. Uh, Bree and and Chris use that language too, but but you know that you're not. It's less of a, a given and more. There's more discussion that's taking place with the woman as as you're doing the the application process. Can you talk to us kind of about your organizational approach and then if you're, what you're talking or thinking about as you're talking to the woman? Yeah. Um, I think that for us, a lot just is in the practical because we work with so many women that haven't abused substances. I mean, these days getting less and less of women who haven't abused substances because it seems to be a trend in our culture. But because of there's such a mix, we have to be pretty careful um, about who we do accept. And, you know, I wish I could give like the, the best kind of policy answer, but it, it really is kind of case, becomes case by case. Um, when we're meeting with women who are just out of a 30-day detox program, we're evaluating sometimes intangible things. Like, do do we really get a sense that this person is on a, a path to recovery and sobriety, or are they just buying their time until they fall back into a cycle that they've been a part of for sometimes 15 years or more? And so it really makes us, you know, back to the comment earlier, it makes us go to our knees. It makes us really evaluate and pray through the women that we are choosing to take into our home. And then there's also the, just thinking about the practical levels of need of women who are in these programs. And we provide a lot of transportation for women. And one woman can all of a sudden daily need as much kind of help and oversight as another might need in, in say, a week's time just because of uh, you know, especially the, in the outpatient and the, the suboxone programs, the daily outpatient meetings at first, and then there's prescriptions are given a week at a time, and and we have we've got to go 30, 45 minutes away to pick up that prescription, and for all of those kind of just practical reasons, it becomes really case by case for us, and so it really sometimes it it'll depend as much on this person and what they're going through, it'll depend as much on who we have in our home current, who are we serving currently, and will we be able to serve both of them well. I know sometimes people have a, you know, a bad experience and then they decide they won't do that again, right? You know, I don't know if there's yeah. a way in which kind of working with women has made you less cautious, more cautious, more aware, you know, if there's been a shift or if that's, if you could speak to that at all. I think if anything that it's probably made us probably a little bit maybe more cautious in in the evaluation process but we don't we also don't have reservations once we've made the decision to bring somebody into our home then we're pretty comfortable with that decision you know i think at first we're probably kind of reevaluating every day can we really do this is this really the wise decision but now i think that we've now that we've done it we feel a lot more comfortable and so it, we just it kind of feels like hey we we kind of know what we're doing and so we've kind of been through this before and so once once the gal is in our program it makes us that much more comfortable with sure. helping somebody walk through that process yeah sure no thank you Suzanne and Lisa um so I get the impression that perhaps you guys have been hesitant um, in this area or cautious kind of um, in this area. Can you talk to us a little bit about kind of your approach there and, and why there's the hesitancy? 
Well, the majority of our active addict clients are coming to us from the drug court program in our community. So they, in like as Lisa has already said, in this area, they do not allow the women to be on uh, methadone or Suboxone or anything. Um, they'll use drug patches while they're pregnant to ensure that they're not using, and, as well as random drug tests and hair follicle tests and things like that. And then once they are no longer pregnant after the baby's born, then they'll do a regular Vivitrol shot, which is a, it's an injection that inhibits the drugs from giving any form of hive, from my understanding. And, um, and it also next to removes the cravings completely. So we've seen great things with that. So we haven't been uh, directly required to take on anybody that's, that's using methadone. We have had some former users who have, who have fallen back into old patterns and have started using Suboxone to, um, a, as a way to get high. And then it progresses back into full-blown addiction. So we've kind of seen the, the two sides of things, but we really haven't worked with anybody that's using methadone as it should be used to control their cravings. Right. Um, and say so we did get somebody in and they were not part of drug court or not from the jail and they were in a methadone or suboxone program. We would go through our intake process with them just like we do everyone mm -hmm. and make the decision based on who we have in the house based on what just exactly like uh, Tim was saying and we would make you know the best decision we could and depending on the level of need how many people we have how many babies we have you know that would be a deciding factor whether we said yes or no if all other things were kind of stacked against them anyway that would definitely be a deciding factor yeah, so what I hear you saying is that you you are working with women dealing with addiction, but not necessarily uh, being medically treated, and that some of that might just be circumstantial in your experience. So exactly, not, yeah. Okay. And now I will, if someone applies and they are in an active addiction, um, if it is meth or you know marijuana something like that, you cannot medically detox. The, they will not take them at the centers here. But what we would do first is try to get them in like a 30-day program that would deal with them. But if it is heroin or opioids, we would be able to get them medically detoxed, then probably send them to a 30-day program before we would have them come into the house at that point. And that way you're kind of covering that medical time and giving them a chance to be free from the drugs for just a little while before we start working on the underlying trauma. And we found that yeah. to be very effective. So maybe for all of you, so I'm trying to think, you know, we know the kind of active users among, and then, you know, people in early recovery are often looking for housing, right? They're coming out of a program, they've gotten some stability, they have a few strategies. So I think figuring out whether people are in active use, if they've just, or if they've dealt with that active use in any way and kind of moved into recovery, that's kind of the hard place of discernment. You know, I, Christine Bree, I hear you saying that from your perspective, they've gone through some level of detox in jail, you know, so that they're coming to you with some level of sobriety by virtue of having been in jail. But I think for many homes, it's that, you know, we're not addiction specialists, right? We don't know where a woman's at in her recovery. We don't know how to evaluate that. Can some of you speak to kind of just how to think about discerning that part of her, her journey? I can speak to that, Mary. This is Christine. I think that as our residents come into our program and we do that full intake and that full evaluation part of our part of the work that we do with them 
is recovery of some sort. So whether that's alcohol or drug addiction or or just hurts, habits, and hang-ups, as that old celebrate recovery phrase goes, every one of our residents is in a place of needing some sort of restoration. And that's what the ministry that we do is about, is about restoration. So in order to help facilitate that, there is a recovery component that each one of our residents participates in. They participate in that, whether it's a 12-step program, a faith-based 12-step program, they kind of can make the choice as to how they want to work their recovery, but they will be working recovery when they're with us. So it sounds like it's secondary when we talk about it, but it is very much without the recovery piece, we're not going to break the cycle of addiction that got them in the place that they were in. And we will be part of that rotating door. It's ridiculously important for us to maintain that standard of care as far as recovery goes. Many of our girls are in drug and alcohol treatment through the the probation office, so they'll work their recovery through that. If they don't have that option, we make available to them Celebrate Recovery or a program called Seeds of Hope that's a local program or, you know, the traditional AA or NA programs. But those aren't options. Those are requirements Mm -hmm. to their weekly schedule along with their psychiatric appointments and their prenatal appointments and their medical appointments and all of those other things. And I I think Tim touched on it a little bit, the practical needs that come with these residents, particularly as methadone dependent, as they're medically detoxing. Unlike Suboxone, methadone is a daily dose. And so we have to arrange transportation for them daily. A lot of times the transportation to and from the methadone clinic to get their daily dose, there's a lot of discussion about their recovery during those transportation times. So constant reframing of their reality happens within the program that that we offer. And we also require, and it's uh, a little bit controversial, but we do require that they at least are down dosing methadone after the baby comes um, on a consistent basis. As long as they are approved health-wise, we require that from them, um, which is why we work with the methadone clinic and we get a consent release as well. So some of the dynamic comes between, like, clinical, you know, homes that have social workers and, you know, kind of clinical staff versus, you know, homes that are being run by lay people that are trying to, you know, just welcome and serve pregnant women. Do you have degrees and training and all that kind of thing? No. We have degrees. We have training. Okay. We do not have a social work degree, but that is something that we would love to add in the future, pending budget allowances and whatnot. But those are the times, too, that since we recognize that those are huge gaps in our abilities, that's when we partner with other facilities or other organizations in the community to provide what we can. I would second that, that um, we're constantly looking to who in the community is already doing this and doing it well um, so that we can send our women to them. For one, so we don't have to reinvent the wheel and also because we know that they're just doing a better job of it than we could. And um, our women, when they come to us, have experienced substance abuse, whether they're medically treated or not. From the very first woman that we took, 
who actually happened to be the same woman that was on a methadone program, um, we wrote up an additional set of guidelines that she had to follow to be a part of our program. And we use that pretty much every time we take somebody with a substance abuse history. And so it's just reaffirming their commitment to be in a, in a recovery program. We encourage all of our women to go to Celebrate Recovery. And then just also different things. We, we want to meet everybody that they leave the house with. If there's a friend that wants to come and pick them up, a sister or somebody, then we want to know who that is. We want to have eyes on, on all those things. And then uh, obviously counseling and, um, and openness with all of those different people. So my way of kind of trying to talk about that dynamic is though, although homes are leery to become experts in addiction, <laughs> they are experts in healing, restoration, redemption, you know, like that those are things that they're kind of excited and, and want to be experts in. Um, and, and so even if they aren't the people providing the addiction expertise, they are well-versed in the things that are necessary to be a healing environment. And a lot of that goes back to our discussions over the course of this podcast, you know, the importance of relationship and safety and setting boundaries and having healthy authority and, you know, kind of recognizing the impact of trauma on their lives and all those things that, that we have this ongoing conversation about. We are in the wrap-up phase, so I always like to give people just a, a, a chance, everyone on the call, to, just a chance to offer um, maybe just a, a gem that for a home that's trying to figure this out for themselves or something that you thought and really wanted to say but didn't have the chance or just kind of a key idea that you take away or, you know, that, that is your, you have to know this in order to think about working with women with medically treated addiction. So maybe we could just go around the horn and, and we'll kind of hear from everyone a little gem. I'll start. Um, this is Bree. We are reading as staff, um, Everybody Always by Bob Goff. And he used the skydiving illustration that has become crucial for us. And when you are skydiving, if your shoe does not work, it is not the fall that kills you. It's the bounce because your bones that broke on the fall will now puncture your organs, um, which is graphic. But the problem with the clients that we are dealing with, I think all of us, is that there's no one there to catch them on the bounce. So we're the ones that are going to catch them and keep them from failing and hold on to them tight. Thank you. What was the name of the book? Everybody Always by Bob Goff. Okay. All right. Worth checking out. Thank you for that. One of the things I would like to add that we haven't discussed is when we're talking about this medical treatment of addiction for our moms, we have to understand that there's a secondary victim and there's a secondary addict in this and it's the baby. Mm-hmm. And so what hadn't really occurred to us until we held an addicted infant in our arms was the detox that she or he had to go through. That brings, as Tim had said earlier, that brings a whole other set of practical needs when you're dealing with with NAF babies and watching these moms struggle not only with natural postpartum, but struggle with the guilt of their NAF baby. So I would highly recommend being cognizant of loving them both because sometimes it can be very difficult to love a mom who's made a choice to be an addict while you're watching a two or three day or week old infant involuntarily tox from a drug that he or she had no choice in the matter and so that can be very sobering to say the least yeah no just being made aware of that dimension it was very sobering yeah thank you for that for me the 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 two things I would want to talk about is one is just that it's about the baby and we had no expectation of, of what would happen the first mom that we took in 
who was on a daily dose of methadone, and that baby spent five weeks in the hospital. And it was very difficult for that mom, literally spent almost every night five weeks. I don't even know how she did it. I don't know how the hospital allowed it, but we kept saying, your bed is here. Please come and sleep through the night, and we'll help you out. And she stayed. She persisted. And so um, it was that was amazing to see, but also it really wore on her. She had no understanding of what was what lied ahead. And now we can a little bit better help women understand that. But still, it's it's going to be difficult every time. And then I think the other thing to mention is that it's just for somebody to be able to say that things are changing. Um, and that when I became a house dad four years ago, our policy was kind of like, you know, we, we want to see a woman who's been clean for about six months before we take her to our program. And, and that's just, we just wouldn't see much of a population here if we didn't change that a little bit. And I remember sitting down um, with um, care net directors in our area and talking to them about our program. And they said, if we can't send women who have addiction problems to you, we can't send women to you. Because in some of our centers, that's all that we see. We don't. Some centers don't even work with moms who don't have some kind of drug abuse history, and many of them are currently using. So it really makes us think that about the fact that if we want to keep affecting this culture and, and keep um, loving women well, then we've got to enter some tough places that we might not have thought that we would. Thank you, Tim. That was yeah, very well said. Thank you. How about our ladies from Foundation House? I think, too, we, we've talked briefly about education and training. And while that is incredibly important and beneficial, there are also lots and lots of books and lots of videos, um, Google pages and internet searches that you can do to learn what you need to know for the moment. Maybe not for the long term, but at least for the moment, for the woman standing in front of you, the woman you're trying to decide whether or not to take in. There's an awful lot of research out there already that you can make use of without the benefit of you know, a, a specialized degree or specialized training. I'm reminded of a quote by a pastor I heard a long, long time ago. He said, uh, don't underestimate the Lord's ability to tell you what he wants you to know. And um, we, we really cling to that. Uh, when, when strange things come up or when we're unsure about what to do or how to deal with something or whether her outburst warrants uh, eviction or whether it warrants grace, we, we trust in that. We trust in the voice of the Holy Spirit and in the wisdom that he's given us. And we trust in his his work that he is working beneath the surface in ways that we cannot see and um, and that is a scary thing to put our faith in the unseen we we do it in our own lives but it is much more difficult when we're doing it in someone else's life and so just don't underestimate the Lord's ability to to make sure that you know what it is he wants you to know yeah thank you thought on Suzanne thank you for that Lisa, any words of wisdom? Well, I just wanted to to say, you know, we've had to make some really hard decisions in the last few weeks about taking people in with some situations that are, they're not even in the realm of anything we've ever discussed. And I was so happy when Tim started talking about, you know, having to be selective and having to take into consideration the others in the home the dynamic that's going on there and it's just it's really a good confirmation that you know sometimes when we have to say no that it is for the right reasons that other people are having to make those hard decisions too because it kind of makes you feel like you're alone and deciding someone's fate and you know it's just Mm -hmm. really scary well thank you for this great discussion i feel like it's an area that 
all homes are either on their radar or will soon be on their radar. And, and I'm grateful for the work that you've done to kind of pave the way and, and think about it and think it through and wrestle with it and have to make sense of make sense of it. So thank you for your witness and thank you for your knowledge and expertise as we do that. So really grateful for your time. Blessings on all of you and blessings to our listeners. We'll catch you on the next podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pregnancy Help Podcast. To subscribe to future episodes, access resources related to today's session, or listen to previous episodes, visit www.heartbeatinternational.org podcast. Thanks for tuning in.